Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by John Putnam, director of Unicity at Cincinnati Bell, now known as AltaFiber. We discuss AltaFiber's smart city division, Unicity, how it got started, and how it's now using public Wi-Fi to tackle the digital divide and digital equity issues in underserved urban regions of the U.S. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure to have you. So to start off, I'd love for you to share some background with me on Unicity, what it is, and how it fits into Cincinnati Bell's overall mission. Gotcha. So Unicity is the smart city division of Alter Fiber, formerly known as Cincinnati Bell, since we mm-hmm. just recently went through a name change. Uh, it was started in 2018 with uh, kind of four pillars or our goals in mind. Um, how do we use our technology to deliver a growing economy, innovative government, thriving neighborhoods, and safer streets? So in the beginning, most of our work was done around that growing economy and, and working with central business districts to drive economic development. Um, and we tried to do some work in the digital equity side, but there just wasn't focus or funding available until COVID hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and while it's been a, a horrible, life-changing event, the silver lining has been that people finally realized that there was a digital divide and that we got some of that funding and focus to address some of those issues. That's fantastic. And you've also corrected me in how to actually say it. It's unicity. Is that right? Correct. Okay. All right. Great. I feel smarter already. And we've only been talking for about 30 seconds. So um, let's talk a bit more about the role Unicity plays in connecting underserved communities, um, since this is a digital divide podcast specifically. Um, One of the things you guys are doing is providing Wi-Fi uh, to communities, um, specifically free Wi-Fi, I think affordable Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi. So um, tell me a bit about about that. What types of partnerships you're engaging in order to do that? and, And a few of the cities where some of that is already active? Great. In in rural communities, we focus in on getting that fiber infrastructure in place because that's, that's in, in the underserved rural communities, that's the most important part is mm-hmm. they just don't have the, the fiber footprint to deliver those services. In urban communities, while they have a fiber footprint in place, um, the, the biggest problem is, is affordability and, and mm-hmm. the you know, most cases. So one of the things that that we have been doing, and and it's been very successful, um, we have, just for frame of reference, over 3,000 public Wi-Fi hotspots uh, within Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati, and and Dayton, the the region we serve, is to pull together partnerships with the municipalities, the school systems, um, and, and the counties and the states um, to help deploy these public Wi-Fi networks in underserved areas. Um, you know, what's been great about those partnerships is everybody brings something to the table. Um, you know, the counties and the state have been wonderful with bringing funding to the table. Um, but the partnership with the school systems has been great in that they help us identify the areas where this Wi-Fi is most needed. Uh, and then we're able to focus in on those high concentration areas. Um, we can't light up the world. So we have to be 
you know, selective and pick and choose the most effective places to deploy that public Wi-Fi. And the schools help us identify those locations where we have those high concentrations of students. Um, and of course, if you have a high concentration of students in needs, certainly their parents are in need as well for all of those other things that, that you know, digital, digital equity brings to the table. So when you set so when you set up the Wi-Fi, um, I assume they're hotspots, or or is it or okay? So is the idea that these students will be able to get Wi-Fi both at school and at home, or or do they need to go somewhere in order to access it? Um, a little bit of both De- okay. depends on on the municipality and the deployment. Um, but what we look to do is identify those high concentration areas, such as apartment complexes mm-hmm. or, or public housing locations. And then light up the whole complex with that free public Wi-Fi. Um, most students have the internet at school, and mm-hmm. and due to COVID, there was a big push to, to to put a device in every student's hands. But when they come home, you know, if they're uh, precariously housed or have a a a family that cannot afford. Um, that internet connection, we want to make that internet connection available to them so they can continue that education process after three o'clock. Gotcha. So tell me a bit more about what comes next after you bring the technology to, you know, such a community, because presumably you don't just set up Wi-Fi and everybody's like, great, Wi-Fi is here and now I can connect and I know exactly what to do and I feel fine about it. Um, (laughs) Presumably you've learned some lessons about what the next steps are to connecting uh, underserved communities. So can you share some of those with me? Sure. And and it has been a learning process. I mean, we, we see that there are three critical elements to, to addressing digital equity. The internet connectivity is only one of those three parts. Uh, the second part is, is devices. So, you know, most schools have gone to a one-to-one, so most kids have a device provided by the school, um, but there's still a ton of adults who don't have a device. So they're, they're forced into trying to do everything you and I do uh, over a, a laptop or a tablet off of a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's very difficult um, to, to have that as your only device. So, so we've worked with a couple of different projects to try to get devices into the hands of people. So in um, City of Covington, with their Covington Connect project, uh, we had a partner, um, ReGadget, out of, I believe it was Houston, who provided a thousand computers. And they took, you know, corporate PCs in and refurbed them and distributed a thousand computers within the community to help those people who didn't have a device. Um, we did a project with Greater Dayton Premier, which is the housing authority in Dayton, Ohio, where as part of the project, we were able to get funding to include devices for every single um, person living in the five housing um, authority communities that we deployed Wi-Fi. Um, so, so as part of that process, we certainly had a learning curve in that the third principle is training. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know how to use a device. So, you know, you can hand uh, someone, uh, you know, a, a new laptop or a new tablet or a new Chromebook, but without training on how to use that, unless they've had that as part of their education process, you're handing them a tool that they have no idea how to use. So we put together a lot of training programs and, and have, have really try to engage community partners to come to the table and help us with that education uh, 
part of the process. And how is that piece of it going, the engagement from um, outside partners? Um, the engagement from outside partners has been wonderful. Okay. Um, you know, we have seen um, corporate partners step to the plate, not only with with um, cash and, and, and funding, but with, more importantly, the resources of their employees. So um, we have a, an organization in the Dayton market called CareSource, uh, third-party Medicare, Medicaid, you know, administrator, um, who has stepped to the plate and, and has dedicated employees off of their staff to help us with these types of projects and, and help coordinate these types of projects. And it's been wonderful. And, and we open up these like training sessions and, and have, you know, dozens of their employees sign up to, to participate. Um, you know, uh, the, the regional transit authorities see that these digital edu- equity projects are, are engaging their customers and, and they want to help and, and they're engaged in the process. So we, we see a bunch of those corporate partners really willing to step to the plate and, and participate not only from, from a cash standpoint, but from a, from a, a, a employee participation standpoint. And how are the communities themselves uh, receiving it? Are are they adjusting? Are and, and do you notice um, any real world impact of of bringing services like this to these communities? Um, quite frankly, most communities are overwhelmed by these sure. projects. Yeah. Um, there are not staffing levels mm-hmm. at at many of these communities to deal with. Um, all the things that, that, that these projects bring to the table. So in many cases, they're initially overwhelmed. Um, but over time, um, they, they, they learn to use the system and engage with people. And, and it's been very heartwarming to see the number of people that actually use our services uh, you know, in, in disadvantaged communities and, and make an, an, a difference in their lives. Um, so, you know, we have a software package that rides on top of our free public Wi-Fi. It's not just a, a raw internet connection. Mm-hmm. It allows us to, to, to do data analytics on the people that are using the network. So we know how often they log in, how long they stay on. And it's not unusual for us to see an average duration of an hour per session. So we know that it's being used and it's, it's not just a pop in, check something, pop back out. Yeah. Um, but it also gives us an engagement platform that allows us to engage with the people that are using the Wi-Fi uh, and, and use it to uh, you know, share information um, and, and improve the quality of their lives. That takes some administration. And that's something that, again... Most municipalities don't have someone on staff. So so those have been some of the struggles that we've had in, in these types of projects. Interesting. And that kind of goes more into the smart cities type of work that you guys are doing, right? When you're talking about analyzing, um, you know, how, how people are using the services and how they can, you can better improve their lives, right? So can you talk to me a bit more about Unicity's efforts in smart city services and the intersection here between the digital divide and smart cities and how you can use those types of analytics to help solve some digital equity problems, for example? Absolutely. It, and they're all tied together. Um, you know, a, if I have a concentration of, of people who need free public Wi-Fi, um, typically that's an indicative of a community that also needs some help as well. 
So, you know, we see some of these communities that are aging, you know, 100 plus year old communities, losing residents, um, you know, how do we use this smart city technology to to drive economic development? So we, we put that public Wi-Fi in, in central business districts. Mm-hmm. And we use that engagement platform to, as you come to the community, I log into the free public Wi-Fi. And it's important that the businesses are involved and, and are publicizing that Wi-Fi and getting people to, to log into that Wi-Fi. But but once they've done that, we then turn around and use that that information to drive economic development. So uh, I'm looking to locate a, a business within a community. My smart city communities can now say, hey, you know, a hundred thousand people drove in front of that property that you're looking at at leasing. You know, ten thousand people walked in front of it. This is how long they stay, how often they come, and this is more information about them. So one, we want to direct or you know draw those businesses in because we've got that information to help them be successful. Um, but then we flip it and say, okay, now I have this engagement platform. I can use it to advertise your business and, and draw more people into the community and make the community more successful. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I now can look at this and say, um, you know, hey, you're a resident versus a visitor. You're you know male versus female. You know, if I have a high fashion boutique, the 60 year old guy who, who is me is probably not nearly as interested as my 50 something year old wife or my 18 year old daughter. You now have the ability to have those small businesses engage with their target market. Mm-hmm. And many of those small businesses just don't have advertising opportunities that are, are within you know, their budget. And we can give them one that is targeted, people that visit their community, and then we can dig into their target markets and then take that revenue and and put it to offset the continuing costs of the projects. So you make the community more thriving, better businesses, more visitors, you know, people who attend the concert, the park. Mm-hmm. Log into the free Wi-Fi. They get information about upcoming events. We can remind them, hey, this week's concert is, is you know, this genre of music. Again, bringing more people in. Then once we have them within the community, we can share. Here's bars, restaurants, shopping. While you're here, instead of having them just come to the community, go to the concert, and leave, now I can get them to stay and shop and eat and, and have a, a more substantive you know, experience within unit. That's interesting. So it's really, it's not just the fact that you're delivering the, the connectivity, but you're also, you have a, a platform on there that's helping people um, connect more with their, their broader community and not just the internet at, at large. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and that same platform can be used to improve, improve the quality of their lives. Yeah. We can take a smoking cessation program and ask as part of the log onto the Wi-Fi, do you smoke? Mm-hmm. And now I can target smoking cessation programs to those who smoke. You know, do you have young kids at home? I mean, the, the infant mortality rate in disadvantaged communities is through the roof. Mm-hmm. If I ask a question as part of my login to the Wi-Fi, you know, do you have, a, you know, a child who's under the age of one at home? Now I can target that messaging to, you know, young mothers that says, hey, here are some things that will improve and, and, and help 
you know, rid us of this, this horrible infant mortality rate within your community. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and it's a way of getting that kind of information to people who might be lost on the other side of the information gap from the digital divide, uh, being present in their communities for all these years. It's interesting that it's, it's, it's a perspective uh, that I don't think I've heard, heard a lot of, on on this podcast so far. So, um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was you mentioned at the top, uh, the cares act kind of kickstarting a lot of the work that you guys are doing now. Um, there's a lot more funding for broadband than uh, back in the ye old 2020 when we passed the CARES Act. Um, so how are you looking at the, the funding that's available now and certainly the funding that's coming through the infrastructure law um, and how that might further impact the work that you guys are doing both with Unis- Unicity and uh, AltaFiber? <laughs> um, great question. And, and CARES Act funding was great. But I think we learned a lot of lessons in terms of setting very short timelines for deploying large amounts of funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, they addressed that with ARPA, and, and we got a little bit longer runway. Uh, and, and hopefully with the infrastructure bill, we'll, we'll have an even longer runway. Um, this funding is, is once-in-a-lifetime funding for some of these projects. And, and we're so excited about it. But the one thing that concerns me is the long-term viability of these projects. CARES Act was focused exclusively on that upfront funding portion. Um, you know, and then I had to go find who's going to pay for that recurring cost uh, you know, as we go forward. I, I hate to bring public Wi-Fi in, in two or three years, turn it back down. Yeah. That, that's the worst case scenario. So you know, ARPA funds gave me a little longer two, three year runway. Um, you know, infrastructure, I, I just have this horrible feeling that it's going to focus on that upfront portion of the cost of these projects. And, and I really am hoping that, that we learn that there is a, a, a recurring cost associated mm-hmm. with these types of projects and we come up with continued funding to keep these projects up and running in the long term. That is a that's a great point. Hopefully, you guys are making uh, that point known to the NTIA and everybody who's writing the the final rules for this funding. Um, and uh, I really appreciated talking to you, and I appreciate you giving me your time. And I'll be keeping up with all of your work. This is all really fascinating. So thank you so much, John. Well, thanks for having me, and and we look forward to uh, continuing this process. As I said, we've got a you know three thousand access points out there and a couple of award winning projects. Uh, and and the participation we've seen at the at the municipal level, the county level, the state level, and all of those federal funds coming our way certainly has us excited about the potential. Awesome, lots to keep up with. So thank you again. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you again, John, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landrio, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.